0: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Christendom Conversations, broadcasting on Radio Christendom. Coming to you, as always, from our campus in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, I'm your host, Mark Rolina, Executive Vice President here at the College. Christendom Conversations strives to bring you the time-tested insights you need to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. In each episode, we visit with a Christendom College professor or occasional outside guest to explore the wisdom found in our liberal arts education and our Catholic faith. We're blessed today to be joined by Dr. Andrew Whitmore. Dr. Whitmore is an assistant professor in the Department of Theology at Christendom College. He's an excellent teacher and author of an exciting new book on virtue, which I hope we'll spend a good portion of our time together discussing today. Dr. Whitmore, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much, Mark, for having me on the show.
0: Well, let's, let's begin with a prayer, asking Our Lady for her intercession for our conversation today and for a growing appreciation and love for virtue in the hearts of every person of goodwill. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus.
1: Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen.
0: Our Lady's seat of wisdom.
1: Pray for us. In the
0: Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, Dr. Whitmore, I'm glad you joined joined the program with us today. Um, I know you've been doing some interviews for the new book, so this is probably old hat for you, Uh, but really excited to be able to talk about it here. But before we get into the book, I want to just start giving a little bit of a background, you know... Where did you start? Did you have a love for theology? You know, you don't have to trace from from the day of your birth or anything, sure. <laughs> but just give us a sense about how you got to where you are now.
1: Yeah, it was funny. I, I was blessed with the, the problem of liking too many subjects when I was going up through school, and um, so theology wasn't my first pick. I actually didn't really know about it. When I went into, when I was looking at colleges, I was looking at architectural engineering first, and I, uh, I went to one of the campuses on a Saturday, and I I looked at the people in their cubicles with the disheveled hair and the bloodshot eyes, and I was like, how long have you been here? And they said, we've been here all through the night. I was like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Little did I know that that's just every major when you get into college and grad school. But um, anyway, so I'm from Massachusetts originally, and uh, I went to Assumption College, which is now Assumption University for undergraduate, and very quickly fell in love with theology. Um, It was part of the core there, And the first class was just called the Bible. Hmm. And so I said, I always wanted to read the Bible. So when I start reading the Bible, and I started from Genesis 1, it took about two years to get through to the end. And I've heard from everyone, like, that's not the way to read the Bible. (laughs) 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 But that's how I did it. And I fell in love with it as as it went. So I, I made it a minor, and then I made it a double major, and then finally I dropped my other major and just focused on theology. And then from there, I went to Washington D.C. to the Catholic University of America for my master's and PhD.
0: Okay. And was there kind of a, a guiding light, a, a professor who really made um, the material come alive to you, or was it just a series of um, you know good good interactions that you had? You know, the the word becoming alive in your in your own heart.
1: I would, would say both, and um, I always attribute it to Mary's hand, her work in it all, just from the being born in the month of Mary, in the year of Mary, um, Assumption College, right, Catholic University. I worked at the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception there. And um, that was when I had my reversion, was in undergrad. Okay. So that's when I, I've, I'm a cradle Catholic, but that's when I really started taking the faith seriously. But uh, Dr. Christopher Kloft would have been my my guide there, my mentor, an undergraduate. Um, he was a moral theology professor, and so he was the one that really got me into it. And then at Catholic University, Madison, mm-hmm. William Madison, who's now up at Notre Dame, uh, was my dissertation director.
0: Okay, great. Well, it's, it's helpful, I think, sometimes for for the listening audience to get um, a perspective about how the Church even looks at theology, and so you you do a lot in moral theology, bioethics. It'd be good maybe to situate that. You know, what are the different lenses? And we're looking at one truth, but we're coming at it from different angles. How does the Church do that?
1: Yeah, it's so funny. when Whenever I tell some family members, other people that I study theology, they kind of just look at you all confused, <laughs> thinking like, you know, well, you did CCD, right? Like, what else is there beyond sure, that? And, sure. and really, there's so much beyond it. Um, theology is not just a monolithic subject, as I'm sure with most subjects, but we have different branches, different areas of study. Obviously, it's always going to be Christ-centered, because that is the central mystery of our faith, the resurrection, but you have different branches. You could have biblical theology that's focusing explicitly on Scripture, although... Every branch should be informed by Scripture. Um, systematic theology kind of goes through the different doctrines and dogmas and how do they fit together, how do they emerge. Historical theology is the development of these ideas over time, you get liturgical theology, and and then I'm in moral theology, which is specifically looking at ethics, so I'd say it's a, it's, um, a cross-section between biblical studies, systematics, and um, theological anthropology, so really looking at what does it mean to be a human person in light of God, mm-hmm. the fact that we're made in the image of God.
0: Okay. And with that sketch in mind, you know, what do we try to do here at Christendom
1: uh, in terms of
0: educating the student? We've got this this big core, yeah. and let's say maybe when you're going to to major in theology, what
1: what would you be exposed to? You'll be exposed to all of it, okay? <laughs> okay. especially the freshman year, that's just nice. Going through the catechism, I would consider that more of a systematic historical theology going through there, but moral theologies in there, sacramental and liturgical theology are in there. Um, sophomore year is where we dive more deeply into the Old and the New Testament, and then junior year coming back around to moral theology in greater depth, and then our apologetics class, which we call a perfective catechesis, so uh, returning to all these subjects that we've um, gone through in the previous years, and going more deeply into them, but also how can we engage the culture with
0: mm. them. Yeah, oh, that's it's so important. I think we'll get into some of that maybe a little bit later. Well, you've written this this great new book, "Saintly Habits: Aquinas's Seven Simple Strategies You Can Use to Grow in Virtue." First of all, if people don't know Saint Thomas Aquinas, they might be thinking uh, he's hard to get into. Uh, if if you've even had any idea about him, uh, do you have a word of comfort for those folks? Uh, you know, and is 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 Aquinas's body of work more than just the Summa? Um, maybe give a sense of that.
1: Yeah, a word of comfort, I would say. Um, well, you, you can look at my book. <laughs> it was no, no, a, shameless a layup there, yeah. <laughs> um, No, St. Thomas um, can be very difficult, but um, I think he's he's more in, people are more intimidated than they should be. Um, St. Thomas has a massive corpus, like St. Augustine and, and some of our other saints here. The Summa Theologiae is his most popular text, but he wrote many biblical commentaries, commentaries on works of Aristotle, he wrote even some smaller summaries of theology in there, so just countless works. Um, but it, it's very organized, mm. and I think why people get so intimidated is, is the style of writing. Sure. It's not like a book you'd pick up and read today. Yeah,
0: was there a reason for that? The way he structured things—you know—you have the the objections and then the answers, and you know, but I say that you know, yeah, it's, just, it's it, as you say, not how we
1: would learn it, but why did it make sense mm-hmm. for what he was putting together? It was really based off of what it would take to become a doctor of theology back in his day. Mm-hmm. In his day, uh, to become a doctor, you would have a three-day process where on the, on, there'd be some topic, some question to be discussed. And on the first day, you would walk in and all of your professors would be there, and they would raise all these objections opposed to that topic, and you would memorize them as they're telling them to you. Mm. May, I don't know, maybe they let some, you write some of them down, but as far as I know, you're memorizing them. Then you would spend a whole day figuring out the answers to those questions and what you want to say. Then you would come back, you'd give your response, and then you'd respond to each one of their um, questions. And so that's the style of his writing. Uh, That itself was a smaller form of just a disputed questions, which Mm -hmm. was a a genre that they had at the time where basically, you know, the students could come and ask the the faculty about these questions. And um, Aquinas also wrote many disputed questions, which are a lot uh, lengthier than the articles in the Summa, sure. but it's a strange. I- until you figure out the rhythm of reading it, it can be hard to to penetrate it. But then once once you figure it out, um, it's just gold. Everything mm. that he has written in there. Right.
0: The the church has something to say about using Thomas Aquinas as our guide too, right? Is that why why does why do we here and maybe the broader church
1: look to to Thomas? He's got the uh, stamp of approval. I right. think it was Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Right. Is that right? who uh, wrote an entire encyclical um, advocating Thomism? Didn't say that it's the only way, but it says it's uh, the best way, or at least the one that's um, safest to be doing theology and philosophy. Um, yeah, so it's just, I, I find that, why would that be the case? Not just because of the lucidity of the way he writes, but the way that he brings together all of the traditions before him. So mm-hmm. all the different Church Fathers, he has ways of dealing with even Augustine and Jerome, and how do they disagree with each other? Well, they're both getting at some truth, right? He can bring all the Church Fathers together, but also th- he then becomes the foundation for all the theology that comes before it. And even, I would say, theologians or philosophers that wouldn't consider themselves Thomistic are still um, influenced by him. Sure. That the, even if it's not explicitly, implicitly, most people wouldn't consider Pope John Paul II to be a Thomist, but in his Veritatis Splendor, Fides et Ratio, the Catechism, you see Thomism all throughout it. So it's it's kind of inescapable,
0: right? Yeah, and he brought brought back to to um, the four many resources that hadn't been available before his time too. So I think mm-hmm. that that synthesis was was timely in his in his work too. All right, so we've got we've got this book. Thomas is centrally featured, uh, you're, you're exploring his thought, maybe basically, what is virtue? Mm-hmm. Does that idea have any relevance for us today? I mean, does the average person
1: even know what that means, virtue? I think to that last question, no. Sadly, we seem to respond in a few different ways, whether that's making fun of virtue. A lot of comedies and movies today kind of make fun of the idea of virtue or the good person. Sometimes we just avoid it altogether. We don't want to talk about it because we don't really know what it is. Or sometimes it just becomes these platitudes. Um, patience is a virtue, virtue is its own reward. Mm-hmm. Those things are true, but we don't know why they're true. Right. But it's really quite simple. I mean, a virtue is just an excellence of human character. So what that presupposes is that there is such thing as human nature, that God created us with a certain nature, and virtue is really just living that out in the most excellent way. And in doing so, that really makes us the happiest mm. that we can be as an individual. Um, when we live as we ought... Things won't always be easy, right? We're not saying the life of virtue is going to be an easy one. I think it's it's very difficult, but it's worthwhile. It's the most fulfilling, satisfying way to live.
0: Sure. And as Aquinas talks about virtue, I mean, he's picking up threads from thinkers before his time. Is that right? Yes.
1: Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Predominantly Aristotle. Um, Aquinas goes far beyond Aristotle. I would say um, when you look at the Summa, there's some 2,000 references to Aristotle, but there's 3,000 to Augustine. Mm-hmm. Um, So, I'd say Aristotle and Augustine are the two big ones. He tends to side with Aristotle more than Plato, but really what he's drawing on is Aristotle's taxonomy of virtue, the different powers of the soul. By that, I mean like capacities. What can we do? We can think abstractly. We call it the intellect. We have free choice. That's the will. We have our emotions, which he would call um, the sense appetites or the passions so we have some control over all these they can all be moderated by reason so there's certain virtues that perfect them in different ways and then from augustine he brings i mean augustine's the doctor of grace so that whole theological component what does it mean to not just have a virtue by nature but to receive one through the infusion of grace at baptism and how's it that the gifts of the holy spirit are incorporated into that so that we don't just achieve some natural true but imperfect Human happiness, but a supernatural happiness of the beatific vision.
0: And that that's an important thing right now. I, th- I don't think people appreciate it as much as they ought, but we think about, well, you know, people can be good without the structure of religion and supernatural grace, and you, you know, I want to be spiritual but not religious, that, that kind of thing. It's, you're actually saying, and I think Thomas is saying, right, that that's, there's a real distinction here between the natural virtue and where God can take that.
1: Yeah, we're stepping into actually some debated waters here when Mm -hmm. it comes to um, the scholarship on it right now. There's debates over over two things. One is, did St. Thomas believe that a non-Christian could have virtue? Mm -hmm. I think the consensus would be yes, although how how, uh, common would it be? That's unclear. The other debate is, how many virtues do Christians have? Do they have what he would call acquired virtues that Mm -hmm. we can attain on our own? as well as infused virtues that come from God? Or is there just one set? It gets into the whole debates on the relationship between nature and grace. But the Church has affirmatively said is that grace perfects nature, doesn't destroy it. Right. But how we work that out specifically, we don't need to get into all that now. Yeah. But the short of it is that... Um, I, I forgot your question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, I no, just that sense of, you know, will God oh, yeah. at least bring to a new level... Mm-hmm. Uh, what we might naturally be able to attain in the area of virtue.
1: Yeah, so I guess what I was getting at was I need to stake my claim here, and and what I would say based off my research is that for St. Thomas, um, yes, virtue is possible apart from grace, but that virtue, although true, is going to be imperfect. Mm -hmm. It's going to be difficult to obtain. Even when you obtain it, there is going to be some sort of grace there, maybe not sanctifying grace, but some auxilium will help you get there. Um, But then, with the life of grace that comes to us in baptism... um, a new horizon is opened to us, and now we can have true but also perfect happiness, a happiness that extends beyond death, right? A happiness that conquers death and continues forever with God in life everlasting.
0: I think you've set the table pretty well. You decided to write the book. What was what was your aim? What were you trying to, to achieve by you know, putting this in the mix for people to be able to read and pick up?
1: I wanted to... Um, it, it's born out of my dissertation, which is on the distinction between dispositions and habits in St. Thomas and how understanding that helps us to know how virtue grows. And originally I wasn't going to publish it as a popular book. It, it was a funny story how it happened. Um, I was planning to, to publish it as an, an academic book, but other things were happening and I, I wasn't getting to it. I was also happy to put it off. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. And, um, and then... Uh, One of my mom's friends, I was up visiting home in Massachusetts, she was asking what my dissertation was about, and I I told her about it, and she's like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, really? You think that's interesting? (laughs) Like, I thought it was so narrowly, whatever. So I thought, eh, you know, maybe she's just being nice. And then I was thinking about it the next week, and I was like, no, maybe this would be. She said, like, oh, you should publish it as a book. I was like, maybe that would be a good idea. And then I get an email out of the blue from somebody I know who works at uh, Ascension Press, saying, "Do you know anybody who wants to publish a book?" Oh wow. So it's like, all right, I think maybe this is a, <laughs> the Holy Spirit sign that I need on yeah. Your shoulder. Yeah. So the idea is to just make St. Thomas more accessible, to make it um, so that people are excited about his thought. He is one of the wisest, not the wisest, theologians we've ever had. And the book is structured around seven strategies for growing in virtue. Each chapter is a different strategy, but to understand each strategy. I have to explain some aspect of virtue. So by the end of the book, you have seven strategies to use—practical strategies—as well as a comprehensive understanding of virtue according to Saint Thomas.
0: And I've got it here. I can pick it up with one hand with no trouble, too. So it's not—it's <laughs> not something that's intimidating. Nowhere near as big as the Summa. Right. <laughs> so it's good. Good entry point. Um, so anybody who strives to live a life uh, where they're—you know—they want to be good, they're trying to be faithful. I mean, you start to get a sense pretty early on. That we're a work in progress, we're probably always going to be a work in progress. So with, with that in mind, how can we uh, not let the perfect be the enemy of the good when it comes to virtue? You know, how do I know I'm, I'm going in the right direction and and not become discouraged by that?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of misunderstandings of virtue that can, I think, lead to these frustrations and difficulties. Sometimes we get this idea that virtue is a thing that you can just collect um, so you know I have courage. Okay, now I've got that. It's done. I can put it on the shelf. Now I'll work on some other virtue. Mm. But it doesn't work that way because they are perfections of our character. We're always developing our character. And so a virtue is not an all-or-nothing thing. It's, he calls it a type of relative, and this is what a, a Aristotle says too, that really the domain of the moral, as much as we don't want to think about this, it's everything. Mm. Every voluntary act that we make every willed decision that we make is either moving us closer to happiness or further away from it. So really every voluntary action is in the domain of morality. That means everything we do is either contributing to virtue or moving us away and toward vice. Um, So that's the first thing that we have to to understand because if we think it's just something we can check off like on a checklist or something and be done with it, we're going to be disappointed. We have to be working on virtue all the time. That doesn't mean we have to get anxious about it. I think, By and large, most of our actions do very little to sway virtue one way or the other. But that also raises the potential to plateau, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to just become content with where we are. The way that we develop virtue, it's like a muscle. You have to keep lifting heavier weights than you were previously to push your muscle beyond its Mm -hmm. capacity, break it down so that it grows stronger. A virtue is similar to that. You have to act uh, more excellently than you usually do. In order to strengthen that virtue. Yeah,
0: and you're, what you're already kind of touching on a little bit without calling by name is you know, we we also have to have a sense of of vice, mm-hmm. and of course we're in an, an era where vice is being promoted as as active good. Um, where does vice fit into this? And in, in, in the book, no spoiler alerts here, but you have you have strategies, I guess, mm-hmm. to to address vice, understand their correlation to virtue, that kind of thing. So. Maybe give us a sense of that. Sure.
1: For St. Thomas, a virtue is a mean between extremes. What he means by extremes is um, a virtue is what's reasonable. It's the reasonable way to act. So we can either fall short of what's reasonable or we can go beyond what's reasonable. And so he says that every virtue has at least two vices opposed Mm -hmm. to it. So, for example, the courageous person, you could fall short of what's reasonable, you could be cowardly, or you could go beyond what's reasonable and be foolhardy, right, where you should have some fear of something, but you don't. Right. So we wanna avoid that. Um, vices would lead to our misery um, rather than our true happiness and contentment. It, it makes, that's what makes us anxious and, and um, upset with ourselves and, and makes life uncomfortable. There are um, different things that have to come together for a virtue, and so vice is gonna lack those things. For a virtue, St. Thomas says, you have to first, it's really the, it's the coordination of all those different capacities we talked about before. Virtue is this optimal human living then we need our reason to be in line with our will, to be in line with our emotions. They all need to be working toward one end. So that means for a virtue, you have to know what the good is, you have to choose it, you have to do it, and you also have to enjoy it to some extent. The vicious person, they know to some degree what the good is, but they willfully choose against it. And they find, they they drive enjoyment out of that, although it's not a true Happiness, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fleeting one as the facsimile of one. And this actually gets to what you were saying a little bit before. Our culture holds up so many vices as virtues. St. Thomas says we have to watch out for those false virtues, that sometimes a vice can have the appearance of a virtue. I, I would compare it to Lucifer, right? He's the devil, but he can take on the appearance of an angel of light. Mm-hmm. So we have to be careful. We have to be wary of those uh, false virtues. Do you have a,
0: an example or two that? You would say, hey, this is a common thing you could point to right now, say, okay, people may not have even thought about that that's what's being done.
1: Yeah, well, what's interesting is he says that a virtue is between two extremes, but it's not, like, right in the middle, Mm -hmm. not like a mathematical midpoint. It always is closer to one than the other, and um, so sometimes people conflate the virtue with a vice. We always tend to think that we're right, Mm -hmm. right? So if I have a vice, I'm going to see the virtue as a vice, because I think that I'm virtuous. But our culture can do this on the whole as well. I think the most common ones that get um, mistaken would be foolhardiness. A lot of people think that that's courage. Right. Really, uh, and sometimes people get away with it too. Like I like to give the example of a fireman has courage, which doesn't mean getting rid of fear. It means containing it and moderating it. So he has the right courage. He knows what to do. He has the right training, the right equipment, and all that when he goes into a fire. Foolhardiness could be somebody who has no training, no equipment, doesn't know what to do, doesn't even know if there's somebody in the burning building, but runs into it anyway. Right Now, if they come out alive with somebody, everyone's going to hail them as a hero, but really they just got lucky. If they burned up, then people would say, what an idiot. Right. Um, so foolhardiness <laughs> is o- often um, mistaken as a virtue. Uh, craftiness as well. So craftiness, Aquinas calls one of the vices opposed to prudence. Mm-hmm. Prudence is about choosing the moral means to achieve a good end Craftiness still can achieve that good end, but does it by immoral means, cutting mm. corners, defrauding people. And a lot of times that can be disguised and hidden, even to ourselves. Um, so I would say that those are, those are common false virtues. But in general, um, like today, tolerance, um, uh, authenticity, you be you, make yourself, mm. all these slogans, there's some element of truth to them all. In, in some context, they can be right, but just taking them as an absolute good I, that takes him too far in Aquinas when consider those real virtues anything that can be used for bad can't be a virtue
0: yeah well, that's interesting i want to get into a little bit more of that but we got to take a quick break for some messages we'll be right back with dr andrew whitmore on christendom conversations as catholics today we are facing a culture that seeks to sweep away the roots and reasons for our faith. All of us need help upholding our Catholic beliefs. That's why each week, Christendom College's Dr. Timothy O'Donnell opens the riches of Catholic education to all Catholics in his Free Principles video series. You can join Dr. O'Donnell for five minutes each week and learn from the best thinkers, hear amazing stories from history, and get spiritual tips to strengthen your Catholic faith. Sign up today at principlesforyourweek.com. That's principlesforyourweek.com. Welcome back to Christendom Conversations, where we offer time-tested insights to help you live your Catholic life to the fullest. I'm Mark Rolina here with Dr. Andrew Whitmore, Assistant Professor of Theology at Christendom College. So before the break, we were talking about you know the interplay of vice, some of these false virtues. It seems kind of hopeless for a young person these days So many mixed messages, of course. But then, I think what's one thing that's really being instilled, whether whether I can remake it at any time or not, everybody should just be happy that a person is the way they are. And so, this idea of self improvement, working on becoming more virtuous, you know, smoothing the rough edges in our personalities, um, all of that seems to be completely antithetical to, you know, uh, the current zeitgeist. So, what do we do with that? And what does a young person do um, to try to? cut through some of that.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I'd say a decade or two ago, the big phrase was, I'm a work in progress. And it was this kind of like yeah. excuse for like, I don't have to be perfect yet because yeah, I'm still working I on it. I remember
0: posters of kittens hanging upside down. Yeah, <laughs> right, hanging so, in there yeah, and all that. Yeah.
1: And so there's still this idea though, at least that you are going to get better. You are going to work on it. Now, going back to what we were just saying about tolerance, our, our culture holds up tolerance as this virtue where it's, it's not even like I'm a work in progress. It's just, this is how I am. And you just need to accept it. And you just need to accept that, which is really selling ourselves short, right? We all want to be perfect, I think, to some extent, because we want to be happy and all that. It's, it's one of our deepest desires. But who thinks they've actually attained it, right? I think um, if we're really honest with ourselves, do we find that we're, we're happy just all throughout the day? Um, I was just talking to somebody about, I won't say who it was, but some celebrity who just he built this whole golf course. And he plays the whole thing twice a day, mm. 300 days out of the year. Wow. And the person who's telling me this loves golf. And he said, I think that would just be so miserable. Yeah. Um, But the point is, being is just um, we're all searching for that happiness. We're all searching for um, what will bring us that contentment, but we're looking for it in all the wrong places. We have an infinite desire. I think if we're honest with ourselves whenever we want something, as soon as we get it, we want something more. And Even the things that we like, if that's all we have, we become unhappy with it. We have the dream of the big house, we finally get mm-hmm. the big house. Oh, maybe we should add a pool, We mm-hmm. get the pool. Oh, maybe we need a new car, right? It just keeps going. So only God can fulfill that. Like Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. Um, only God's infinite, so anything else is is gonna, it's not gonna fill that desire, it's gonna make us unhappy. So for those who think, you know, I don't need to change, you need to accept me as I am, that means that they're content or, or they're claiming to be content with that imperfection, that finite thing that can't fill that infinite desire. So they're selling themselves short. So I, I don't know, the advice I would I would give to people today, I guess, is to just be honest with yourself, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's like, Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, exactly. I don't know if you
0: remember that, but in some things he's cutting to what you're saying there, which is, you know... We kind of know if this is fulfilling or not.
1: Yeah, and and I don't know why we're not honest with ourselves. Some of it might be we're afraid of other people's impression, mm-hmm. which is another reason why we say, "Tolerate me," right? Because I don't want to. I can't bear your judgment. Sometimes we just don't like being with ourselves. When we mm-hmm. when we do have to face ourselves, it can be uncomfortable because we see all the things that we don't like. Um, this is why Pope Benedict XVI, um, Cardinal Seurat, they emphasized the importance of silence in mm-hmm. encountering God as silence before we encounter Him as word. Um, so that there's that space to hear God's word. Um, so I guess the first thing I would say is to just, yeah, just take that moment, unplug the the iPod, uh, whatever, the earbuds, mm-hmm. and uh, take that silence and, and, and be with yourself and ask yourself those questions.
0: Yeah. yeah. The intros- introspection is harder and harder to come by these days, but so important. I know there are um, lots of groups looking at technological fasts and other things just to reclaim some of that um, and not people all along the spectrum of belief too are starting to understand. So you've talked about it in some certain senses here without mentioning it by name, but where does conscience fit in there? You know, I think we we hear a lot of people saying, well, I need to follow my conscience. So, you know, if this tells me this is what I'm supposed to do, it's, it's a good, it's right. Um, how do we sort out conscience relative to the things you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I guess the theme of all my answers there, uh, it's misunderstood, right? Yeah. Virtues misunderstood, vice is misunderstood, conscience is also misunderstood. Yeah. Sometimes we think that conscience just means whatever I... Dis- like, we can legislate our own values or mm-hmm. something, I can determine what's right and what's wrong. The Church teaches two principles of conscience, and it's important to keep them both, because if we take only one of them, we're going to get into um, silliness. So one is that we must always follow our conscience because it is in our heart of hearts what we think is right or wrong. So if you, in your heart of hearts, your deeper most part, think that something's right and then go against it, right now you're doing what you think is wrong. Mm. So you're willing evil in some way. That's always going to be bad. But you must also form your conscience, Mm -hmm. and that's the other principle, because even it's not enough to just in your heart of hearts think something's right Because what if it's not? What if it's something horrible? Even though you're trying to do what's good, you have good intentions. We've all heard the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Right. So um, it's going to corrupt you faster if you intend evil. But even if you intend good but are doing something that's evil, that's still going to corrupt you over time. You can't have that true human flourishing and excellence and contentment that we've been talking about. So for conscience, you have to follow your conscience, but you also have to form it. And Mm -hmm. so this is part of the reason why we have this book, and why we looked at St. Thomas. He helps us to form our conscience. The Church and her teachings helps us to form our conscience. But even when it comes to life of virtue, I think one of the things that people get frustrated about is that we like black and white, Mm -hmm. we like rules to an extent, because it just lends us clarity. Part of what's frustrating about virtue is that it's somewhat contextual. It is objective, there are certain parameters you can't exceed, but what is prudent for me in this situation might be different from what's prudent in that situation Mm -hmm. if we just change one of the variables. So the way to become virtuous is often to find virtuous people, to imitate them. And um, so that's another way we can form our conscience, is actually finding holy people, looking to the saints, the lives that they lived, and forming our consciences that way.
0: The lack of introspection, the sort of outward focus that everything seems to be gearing us towards that doesn't get us off the hook either, does it? I mean, as especially I mean, all of us, but especially as Christians, that duty to form the conscience well exists, so I can't just sort of turn a blind eye to what is right and wrong just because I might not like the answer. Right? That's, I, mean, I just think some people avoid even asking the big questions on some of these things, just so they can keep doing what they're
1: doing. There was a moral theologian decades ago who suggested, looking at the culture back then, and saying, look, nobody's following the moral teaching, Let's stop teaching it, and then they won't be morally responsible for Mm. it. Wow. (laughs) And I think Jesus said something about, like, it would be better to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the ocean rather than to do something (laughs) like that. That sounds familiar, Um, So it sounds awful, right? So on the one hand, yeah, if you were to do that, people wouldn't be culpable for their wrongdoing, but they also wouldn't be happy. Yeah. Uh, Same thing with evangelization. Like, if people could be saved without the gospel or something, like... No, they can't, right? There's no salvation inside the church. But right, if they could, then, w- then wouldn't that be better? Why, why don't we leave them be? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, even if that were the case, wouldn't it be better to have Christ? Yeah. Wouldn't it be better to have that relationship with him? So the same thing with conscience is that um, we, we need to form it. We have a duty to form it, and that's not just for Christians. Like, all people have a duty. Um, Cardinal Newman talks about the conscience as the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Mm. It's that divine spark that God has placed within us All of us, not just the baptized, but everybody has this divine spark within them, everyone's made in the image of God, and so it's that aboriginal vicar of Christ there. Um, We need to listen to it, but we also need to form ourselves that way we listen to it correctly.
0: What a great phrase, that is aboriginal. So uh, this is, I think, pointing towards one of the big things that maybe even in our evangelizing call sometimes gets lost, and when we start to get into the different branches of theology, as you've discussed, sometimes we're talking about rules and... Uh, moral theology can lend itself to this, but at the end of the day, the Church wants people to reach happiness, to find Jesus, to to live an eternal life um, with riches that they never imagined. And where can we do better, maybe, in, in leading with that uh, part of the conversation? Because lo- there's a lot of brokenness out there. That's a powerful message, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that the rules thing gets misconstrued in different ways. Uh, sometimes people think that Morality's only rules and that's why they're kind of hesitant to study it or to go into it because they think "Ah, I've got enough rules I don't want more Um, The life of virtue, but but then the other kind of problem is for people who want to get rid of the rules Mm -hmm. Right and just say like oh, you know do what you want be what you will. I would say that the rules are the foundation You can't be happy you can't be moral apart from those rules, but they're only the beginning point right you wouldn't be that impressed if you just wrote down on your hand the Ten Commandments in each day, like, all right, did I murder anyone today? Right. Did I commit adultery today? Like, you come home, honey, I'm home. I guess what I didn't commit adultery today, right? right? I don't think she's gonna be applauding you. Yeah. Um, actually, she's probably gonna <laughs> right, start raising her eyebrow yeah, at that right. point. Yeah. Um, the rules are just the starting point. You can't be moral without them, but then the life of virtue is that extension beyond it, right? Mm-hmm. Really pushing yourself to the full excellence. And so, to go back to what you're saying, right? This is this is the gospel message, this is the good news, the beautiful news, is that um, this is what happiness is about. I think we misunderstand where the rules come from, because we have so many corrupt leaders in the world right. today, we've, we've had so much pain and hurt, um, maybe you know bad parenting and things like that, that sometimes, for many people, rules are just arbitrary. They're self-serving, they're meant to hurt other people. But a true law, and especially all of God's commands, don't come from a place of arbitrary will, mm-hmm. they come from a place of reasonable love. That's because God loved us so much that he would give his own son for us, right? Because he loves us so much. He says, I know you better than you know yourself. Mm -hmm. I know your nature right, better than you know it. And so I'm giving you this little cheat sheet, right? This is what's good for your nature. This is what's bad for your nature. If you do what's good for your nature, that's going to make you happy. And what he wants is our happiness, And so, really, for a long time, morality—the central question that people have been raising—is what rules do I have to follow? But if you go back to Aquinas, Augustine, Aristotle, the central question of morality is: What do I do to be happy? Right. And that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be happy, and ultimately, that's going to be to rest in Him in eternity.
0: Yeah, I had the blessing to study under uh, Dr. Charlie Rice, and he would always say, "You know, you can put." sand in your gas tank but you're not going to be able to go anywhere like yeah. the, we're designed in a particular way and um, to have insight into what makes us happy why would we not try to to follow that path so well the book is saintly habits aquinas's seven simple strategies you can use to grow in virtue it's available if you want to look on press.christendom.edu we're going to leave the book now for a minute just i I'm kind of fascinated about uh, moral theology and bioethics uh, and if we can just end with a little bit of commentary on that What's your assessment of the current landscape in this area? I mean, are there Victor Frankensteins in, around every corner right now?
1: I thought you'd want to end on a positive <laughs> note. <laughs> You're going
0: to give us a word of hope. I'm confident about that. Yeah. All right. We'll get
1: to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's a lot of scary stuff going on. We can't deny that. Um, uh, Jurassic Park is my favorite movie. And I always go back to Ian Malcolm's quote of mm-hmm. um, what was it? Now I can't remember it. Nature um, finds a way. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> life will find a way. But yeah. the one is like um, all you were concerned was whether or not you could. Mm. You never stop to think whether or not you should. Right. Yes. And that seems to be where we are right now is that we're just testing the limits. So, you know, what is possible? What can we do? Not whether we should do it. Mm. I mean, there are stories of actually, speaking of Jurassic Park, bringing woolly mammoths back to life. Yeah. Um, we have discussions of um, growing organs. And, and, and a lot of these things can have good uses and come out of very good intentions and all that. But, um, the sort of experiments that are involved with doing them sometimes growing, you know, how many human organs can we grow on animals like ears on the back of mice and things like that. The scariest one for me right now is um, in vitro gametogenesis, Mm -hmm. which is to take the somatic cells of a human, which are their skin cells, for example, and to induce them into egg or sperm cells. Yeah. So you could take one person, take, take, two of their skin cells, turn them into egg and sperm, and clone a person from that. Wow. Or you could take one from one person, one from another, and then it wouldn't be cloning, but it would still be this artificial reproductive technology. But it's asexual reproduction. Yeah, It's just making people without the marital act, without, you know, completely outside the context of human love and the covenant of marriage in a scientific lab.
0: Oh, it's scary stuff, yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And you think about it, even just the testimony of the people who have,
0: you know, been brought into the world uh, through the current techno- technological uh, advances that they actually have a sense of 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 loss and, and sort of distancing from other human beings, right? I mean, it, it's it's very sad to read some of those stories. People realize, okay, I was created this way. You know, um, what do you what do you think we need to do to combat some of these things? What's the right approach? I mean, I'm especially thinking about the pace of technological change. It's almost hard to keep up. It is hard. Um, to the Church moves slowly, yeah. <laughs> you know, in a considered way, but but this is
1: every day's a new in, invention. And that can be frustrating, but I also think it's wise. Um, we wouldn't want, the, you know, the Church is infallible in teachings on faith and morals, but it's not always the, the Holy Spirit, like a beam of light, coming down mm-hmm. on the Pope and telling him the answer to things, right? A lot mm-hmm. of it is we're, we're looking at the science, we're trying to figure out actually what's going on here in order to, with prayer and discernment, make that pronouncement. I think the hope is that Christ has already won the victory. We already know the end of the story. Um, Christ wins; He's already won. We're just seeing that play out in time. So, as bleak as things get, they're always going to get better. Right? Um, we can you know, things might get worse, but in the end, right? There is the final judgment. There is Christ coming in glory. Now, that doesn't mean we just sit back for that. Mm-hmm. We do what we can in the meantime, and even there, I think there's a lot of hope. I mean, every day conversions happen. Um, sometimes we get, we despair when we look at the big picture. I think we need to, I think the answer to a lot of things might be kind of looking at things, small scale, Mm -hmm. even in the life of virtue. How am I going to attain virtue? Well, start small. Think of St. Therese, do the little things with great love and you're going to have greater. I think that was one of the strategies. You're going to have greater, um, success than if you try to do the big things that you're not able to do yet. So with virtue, you start small. With uh, evangelization, start small. Start with your family members. Start with your neighbors. Um, when it comes to technology, and can we believe anything anymore with Chat GPT and right. AI and all these things? Yes. Well, we're gonna have to come back to face-to-face conversations. We're gonna have to come back to local communities and being able to see the people. And
0: isn't that an interesting thing? I mean, if you take you know all the different things related to COVID, I, I, people got a sense, I think, about at least in some places, you know. I'm, whatever I'm doing, if I'm traveling great distances to go to work or I'm spending time away from family, that that, you know, they evaluated that. And now some of the technological advances, ChatGPT um, are, are forcing, we, we already have sort of a robust approach, but I think yeah. I'd have to do things here at Christendom to to account for this. But a lot of other places have a very detached approach to looking at papers or even if yeah. they, they have them. So um, it, the rehumanizing of some of this is interesting as a byproduct. Um, at least one good thing you can maybe point to. Yeah, for somewhere. sure. Yeah. All right. And I think that's all we have time for today, Dr. Whitmer. I, I think about a dozen other things that I'd like to talk <laughs> about. So I'd hope you would be willing to be back on the yeah, program. Yeah, we'll this future. again. Um, sadly, our show is at an end for this installment. We want to thank everyone who has tuned in. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can email us at radio at christendom.edu. For more information about how Christendom College is helping its students learn the truth, live the faith, and thrive, please visit our website at christendom.edu. We hope you'll join us again very soon as we continue to point towards some of the rich treasures that our faith in a liberal education can offer. You know, our Lord is constantly calling us to deepen our relationship with Him and each other. Especially at this time, it can seem as if the practice of virtue and the growth in holiness is an impossible task. The world brings into our lives temptations and distractions that make even small steps in the right direction appear like huge leaps, too great for us. The path forward, even when overloaded by what feels like an impossible weight, is the same as it has been for over 2,000 years. St. Paul of the Cross said it well, and I quote, "...live in such a way that all may know that you bear outwardly, as well as inwardly, the image of Christ crucified, the model of all gentleness and mercy. For if a man is united inwardly with the Son of the living God, he also bears his likeness outwardly by his continual practice of heroic goodness, and especially through a patience reinforced by courage, which does not complain either secretly or in public." Conceal yourselves into Jesus crucified and hope for nothing except that all men may be thoroughly converted to his will. End of quote. Truly, all things are possible when we consecrate the effort and even our struggles to Jesus Christ and then take refuge in him. We must ask at each fall to be picked up by him that we may begin anew. Have a great day and may God bless you.